Hello and welcome to episode 74 of Pay-Per-View, where I review the papers and big headlines over the week, place events and headlines in their true context in a weekly podcast. And the first subject this week is Boris Johnson meeting Bill Gates. This is in The Express. Boris Johnson discusses crucial coronavirus detail in film call with Bill Gates. Prime Minister Boris Johnson has spoken with Bill and Melinda Gates to discuss vaccine development and other coronavirus-related work. Mr Gates, a philanthropist and billionaire co-founder of software giant Microsoft, has been a prominent non-governmental figure in the COVID-19 pandemic. Along with his wife, Mr Gates founded the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation 20 years ago. It is claimed to have committed $250 million to the COVID-19 response, predominantly to vulnerable communities. The three were also joined in the city by Kate Bingham, chair of the UK's Vaccine Task Force. In a statement, the government said the Prime Minister spoke to Bill and Melinda Gates today via video call. He was joined by Kate Bingham, chair of the UK's Vaccine Task Force. They discussed the UK's contribution to helping countries around the world tackle coronavirus and the important work of the Gates Foundation in this area. Both parties expressed their hope that a viable vaccine will be found as soon as possible. They also shared their commitment to the vital work of Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, and look forward to the upcoming UK-hosted Global Vaccine Summit on June the 4th. Global Vaccine Summit, a conference run by Gavi, will be an entirely virtual event this year as part of a scheme to immunise 300 million children with vaccines worldwide. Gavi, an international vaccine supplying organisation, has secured billions in financial support from national governments around the world. In addition to hosting its virtual global summit, the UK has pledged £330 million in annual support for the organisation. Other donors include Norway, which has pledged $1 billion over a certain period of time, as well as Canada, Spain and Japan. Commenting on hosting the summit, the UK government said in a statement, the summit is an important milestone to secure support for Gavi's five-year strategy, which will immunise 300 million children and save up to 8 million lives by 2025, and for Gavi's vital work to strengthen health systems around the world and help tackle coronavirus in some of the world's poorest countries. This will help stop future waves of infection spreading globally, including coming to the UK. The UK government and Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, are working with partners to finalise plans for the summit programme, a format which will be shared with partners in due course. Meanwhile, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has been supporting the COVID-19 response in the US. The Gates Foundation said in March that it was providing technical assistance to the Seattle Coronavirus Assessment Network, which aims to track the local spread of COVID-19. But the US Food and Drug Administration recently suspended the SCAN project, with SCAN saying that the FDA had tightened guidelines to require emergency approval first regarding the testing of patient samples collected at home Reuters reports. But SCAN noted that the FDA has not raised any concerns regarding the safety and accuracy of SCAN's test. Mr Gates has previously warned against the emergence of global pandemics years before the spread of COVID-19. In a 2017 blog post, he wrote, We don't know when the next pathogen will emerge, what it will be, how it will spread or who will be affected, but we do know that the world is not prepared to deal with it. Mr Gates also backed the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness innovations which he said would also help develop vaccines for future outbreaks. His work has reportedly given rise to a number of theories which led to one Italian politician, Sergio Cuneo, calling his arrest according to Snopes. Well, I talk about the cult which runs the world in episode 59 part 2, and the cult has front people operating in human society on their behalf like elite Zionist Bill Gates. All the Silicon Valley celebrities like Ray Kurzweil at Google and those who officially run these tech companies and social media platforms in Silicon Valley like Zuckerberg, Brennan Page at Google, Wachiski at Google and YouTube, and even people like Barry Diller at Vimeo, which is headquartered in New York, are all elite Zionists, cult-controlled through the elite Zionist network. More information on this in episodes 19 and 59, part 2. Kurzweil claims an 80% success rate of predicting technological advancement, but when you're a front person for the cult, it's easy to predict what's coming when the network you represent is making it happen. It's the same with elite Zionist George Soros, a billionaire frontman who has great success. 
but it's in economics of different countries because the coal which controls him controls the global economic financial banking system and the stock market. These people become very rich, but the deal is that a large amount of money is spent on advancing the cult's agenda. Cyrus was involved in trying to stop Brexit by funding the Remain campaign. Cyrus funds the progressive left, which has taken over the Democratic Party in America. I talk about the new left, far more like the old right, tra traditional right, in episode 36, and Cyrus's funding of American politics in episode 62. Cyrus has funded so-called people's revolutions in countries the cult wants to target, like in Ukraine and other countries. Cyrus also funds so-called fact-checking websites, which exist to push the official narrative on anything and everything. And as I explain in pay-per-view in print, now available at pay-per-view.uk, the new pay-per-view website, as an e-book, but the print version is coming very soon. Cyrus is also involved in orchestrating migration into Europe, and I explain how that's done in pay-per-view in print. When you look at what Bill Gates is funding, it's a wish list for the Common Core, a ludicrous system of education, brought in during the Obama years, elite Zionist. Gates has also backed more college graduates, officially to help tackle poverty, which doesn't make sense because to go to college means acquiring from many what is lifelong debt and being in debt to the very financial elite, the cult which owns Gates. The Rockefellers founded the General Education Board in 1902 in America. I've talked about education in episode 21. Vaccines, which I talk about in episode 44, part 2, 54, and in terms of COVID-19, 71, are also funded by Gates to a massive extent, including the COVID-19 vaccine with his front people in government like Chris Whitty, Chief Medical Officer in Britain, who took £40 million from Bill Gates toward malaria research in Africa in 2008, and Professor Neil Ferguson of Imperial College London, which is funded by Bill Gates, whose computer models caused the lockdown in Britain. Why is Gates cited as a global health expert? He's a software developer. Ferguson and his team at Imperial College are funded by Gates, as is the Johns Hopkins University in America, which is compiling the global death figures for COVID-19. I exposed Ferguson in episode 72 in relation to the World Health Organization created by the Rockefellers and Rothschilds. The Rothschilds are the innermost core of this cult and funded more than anyone else by Bill Gates, who is utterly obsessed with population control. Gates' father, William H. Gates, was head of Planned Parenthood, a Rockefeller organization involved in eugenics, and I've mentioned before the predictions, more than predictions, knowledge of the agenda of Dr. Richard Day, a Planned Parenthood executive who in 1969 gave a speech talking about how the world would change in fine detail and when compared with what's happened since that time it's astonishing the accuracy because he was close to the Rockefellers and so he knew the projected agenda for the world. GM food which I talk about in episode 26 is funded by Bill Gates to exploit the people and children of Africa under the guise of providing food for them even though the old method of growing food is actually far more effective. Gates brought Microsoft to the world, which provided the computerization necessary for the cult's agenda to succeed. Microsoft are also involved with advancing the transhuman agenda. I talk about in episodes 10 and 11, as are other Silicon Valley companies. Gates also funds the BBC. Oh yeah, through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is telling us the latest news, so they tell us, of COVID-19. This article from the National Review website about Bill Gates sums him up, really. This is published on March 14th, 2014. Bill Gates supports death panels. 
It is funny in both the ha-ha and ironical senses that those who often scream most loudly against the death panel meme often follow, but we need death panels. The fact is that most of those in the technocratic classes want to medically discriminate against those who are seen as healthcare takers or perceived to have a lower quality of life. Death panels are when doctors decide who gets treatment, who gets vitamins and who gets fluids and other material they need to stay alive and who doesn't. And we're seeing this now in hospitals over COVID-19 with elderly people being urged to sign do not resuscitate forms. Some of them won't even know what they're signing. And we were told originally that the lockdowns were to protect old people. These are the same old people who have lower immune, lowered immune systems because of their age. And if it was really about helping old people, why is the media, why is government, why is authority not telling them what vitamins to take to boost their immune system, not least vitamin D and other supplements, etc., that would help? Old people were just exploited. And what we've seen is originally it was about elderly and vulnerable. And then it was about this and about that and about the other reasons to keep extending the lockdown because it was never about people, it was about control. And this first paragraph actually says a lot because the technocratic classes, I've said before that the stretch plan for society is a technocracy. People talk about fascism, communism, and that does play out. But what we're really looking at is technocracy, which is not talked about as much, but really should be because that's where we're moving into. Unelected bureaucrats and technocrats technical experts, including bankers, by the way, people who've never seen a ballot box in their life and never will. And it says the technocratic classes want to medically discriminate against those who were seen as healthcare takers or perceived to have a lower quality of life. This is eugenics, which, as I just mentioned, is Bill Gates and his father have both been involved in all their lives. And it's also what the Rockefeller family, which, as I said, Bill Gates's father was very close to, have been about for generations and i believe henry kissinger is quoted as saying henry kissinger has been a front man for this cult for generations decades he once referred to elderly people as useless eaters because the system is only interested in those who can serve it once you're no longer of use that's it we're not interested in you that's why elderly people are treated so appallingly anyway the article continues they're just not sure how to get from here to there and retain popular support for the death panels Hint, they can't. Now, in a Rolling Stone interview, Bill Gates... What's Bill Gates doing being interviewed by Rolling Stone? Bill Gates joins the chorus. He says, like bioethicist Daniel Callahan, that we have to be careful about making technological improvements in medicine because we won't want to make them available to all. This is the mentality we're dealing with here. This guy is absolutely fundamental and central to the COVID-19 situation. Spare that one. This is the guy who's funding vaccinations for COVID-19. This is the guy who wants to use potentially a untested first-of-its-kind vaccine with no safety studies, no long-term testing to verify its safety to fight COVID-19. Just bear that in mind when you see this guy talking about COVID-19 on the BBC in the news, when he gets softball questions by the presenters. not a surprise on BBC. He funds them. Anyway... I mean, what kind of person would say that? We have to be careful about making technological improvements in medicine because we won't want to make them available to all. The psychopath, and that's what Bill Gates is. Gates, if you accelerate certain things, 
but are not careful about whether you want to make those innovations available to everyone, then you're intensifying the cost in such a way that you'll overwhelm all the resources. Rolling Stone, like million dollar chemotherapy treatments. Chemotherapy, by the way, assisted suicide. It doesn't just kill cancer cells, it kills all cells. And the question is, have we killed enough cancer cells before we kill or without killing other cells to avoid killing the patient? And I know there are more targeted forms, but even so, it's Russian roulette. And the other form of cancer treatment is radiotherapy, which is radiation. And what is the cause of cancer? Radiation. The article continues. Gates. Yeah, or organ transplants for people in their 70s from the new artificial organs being grown. There is a lot of medical technology for which, unless you can make judgments about who should buy it, you will have to invade other government functions to find the money. Joint replacement is another example. There are four or five of these innovations down the pipe that are huge, huge things. Rolling Stone. Yeah, but when people start talking about these issues, we start hearing loaded phrases like death panels and suggestions that government bureaucrats are going to decide when it's time to pull the plug on grandma. Gates. The idea that there are not trade-offs is an outrageous thing. Most countries know there are trade-offs, but here we manage to have the notion that there are not any. So that's unfortunate to not have people think, hey, there are finite resources here. The article continues. This is the rest of the article now. But they do want to have the government or bioethics committees delegated the task by government decide when to pour the plug on grandma. Moreover, trade-offs is a code term in this context for death panels. Yes, we have to find ways to control medical costs, but not through death panels, not through invidious discrimination, depriving people of non-elective or necessary care, while payment for coverage of lifestyle and house continues to increase. The approach is both morally wrong and politically unsustainable. So Bill Gates supports death panels, and that's not a surprise because the cult that controls him is a death cult. And, I mean, they must love watching the news now and the, over the past few months of COVID-19. Or the deaths would have not, I would say, caused by COVID-19, but the deaths nonetheless. They would love that because they love death and suffering of other people. And once people realise the mentality running the world, then so many things become clear in terms of why they're happening. And we can start to see that society is agenda-driven, not people-driven, as I've said many times before. And that agenda is the agenda. Almost a third of patients to die with the coronavirus had diabetes, NHS England data shows. Almost a third of people who have died after testing positive for coronavirus in English hospitals had diabetes. New NHS England data has shown. Look at the language. I pointed this out before. To die with coronavirus is not the same as dying of coronavirus. That's even been omitted officially in one of the government's press briefings. And testing positive for coronavirus does not mean you have got coronavirus because the test is not testing for COVID-19. It's testing for a random unidentified sequence of genetic material which can be in the body from a wide variety of different causes. Almost a third of people who have died after testing positive for coronavirus in English hospitals are diabetes, new NHS England data has shown. This is higher than previously thought as health service data released last week suggested 26% of COVID-19 victims in English hospitals have the condition. The new figures show that overall 7,466 of coronavirus patients who have died in hospitals in England have type 2 diabetes. A further 365 who died had type 1 diabetes. This is approximately 32% of the 24,739 COVID-19 deaths recorded in English hospitals up to May 17th. Figures released on May 14th suggested that 5,783 diabetes patients had died with, with COVID-19, not from it, out of 22,332 at that time. Lead author of the study, Professor Jonathan Velabji, called the finding worrying news and said it shows the extent of the risk of coronavirus for people with diabetes. 
No, it doesn't. It shows the extent of the risk of diabetes. There's a difference. People are dying of diabetes. They're not dying of COVID-19. He added, importantly, it also shows that higher blood glucose levels and obesity further increase the risk of both types of diabetes. No, it doesn't show that at all. Charity Diabetes UK are calling on the government to ensure that patients are kept safe at work and can access other support systems such as supermarket delivery slots and emotional support. The organisation's director of policy, Bridget Turner, said, We know people with diabetes will want to know what they can do to keep themselves safe. Well, since they're dying of diabetes, then they'll already know that because they've got it. So they'll already have been advised what to do because that's what the problem is. It's not COVID-19. The most important thing anyone with diabetes can do is try their best to manage their condition carefully, keeping their blood sugar in range as much as possible. But that's just general advice for diabetes, which every diabetic will know, without needing to have Director of Policy Bridget Turner tell them. I mean, where would diabetics be without Bridget Turner to tell them they need to keep their blood sugar levels in check? Oh, where they already are. All people with diabetes should also follow stringent social distancing measures to reduce their chances of catching the virus altogether. Well, that is advice for everyone, apparently. She gets paid to give this advice. According to the data released last week, there were more re- recorded deaths of diabetes patients than those with other comorbidities. Some 4,048, 18% of those who died in hospitals in England since March 31st had dementia, and 3,254, 15% were reported to have chronic pulmonary disease. I wonder if that might have been the cause of death. While 1,549 patients had asthma. Can asthma cause you to die? I think it can. NHS Indian are offering video consultations and online appointments as well as routine discussions with GPs so that diabetes care can continue throughout the pandemic. They've also set up a dedicated helpline with Diabetes UK to help people who use insulin. Well, what's happening is, of course, we've got the claim that people with underlying health conditions are more likely to be susceptible to the virus. But what's happening, in truth, is people are dying of those other causes, those underlying health conditions, and being designated COVID-19 on the death certificate and people are being labelled on the death certificate as COVID-19 almost no matter what and doctors and nurses have come out and said this and it's interesting to look at figures for diabetes in a typical year according to the National Diabetes Audit as of 2011 as many as 24,000 people with diabetes die unnecessarily each year and in 2016 as reported in 2018 an estimated 1.6 million deaths were directly caused by diabetes Another 2.2 million deaths were attributable to high blood glucose in 2012. So not necessarily diabetes, but attributable to high blood glucose, which is obviously part of being diabetic. And almost half of all deaths attributable to high blood glucose occur before the age of 70. So when you realise those figures, it puts the whole situation in a different light. And that was from the World Health Organisation. But we don't hear these figures in the media. And it's interesting that it the article title is almost a third of patients to die with coronavirus had diabetes data shows so because as i've said before there is a difference between dying from coronavirus and dying with coronavirus and when you look at the way that test the pcr test for covid-19 is not testing for covid-19 it's testing for a random unidentified sequence of genetic material the source of which is unknown And this is why people test positive, isolate for 7 to 14 days and test again and test positive again. 
because they're testing positive for the same genetic material they had the first time and they've still got. They'll test positive a third time if they do it again. And just to put these figures into perspective, the figures that we hear all the time for case figures and death figures, around 220,000 people receive a diagnosis of pneumonia each year. Now, of course, we're told COVID-19 is a disease that affects the lungs, pneumonia disease. That statistic comes from the British Heart Foundation. And there are around 47,800 new lung cancer cases in the UK every year. That's around 130 every day. That comes from Cancer Research UK. Why are they not talking about this in the media? Because if you balance the figures we get through the media, which are highly questionable, with statistics like those I've just mentioned, then you get a different picture. And that's not what those that own the media, the cult, want people to believe. Because then they can't sell the changes in society on the back of the fear that they are generating. And that's why the answer is information communication alternative information so people can see that these changes in society these measures that are being taken are not to protect people but they are to control people but and the next subject this week is coronavirus tests this is in the telegraph tens of thousands of coronavirus tests have been double counted officials admit Tens of thousands of COVID-19 tests have been double-counted in the government's official tally. Public health officials have admitted diagnostic tests which involve taking saliva and nasal samples from the same patient are being counted as two tests, not one. The Department of Health and Social Care and Public Health England each confirmed the double-counting. This inflates the daily reported diagnostic test numbers by over 20%, with that proportion being much higher earlier on in the crisis before home test kits were added to the daily totals. Almost 350,000 more tests have been reported in government data than people tested since the start of the pandemic. The discrepancy is in large part explained by the practice of counting saliva and nasal samples for the same individual twice. Public Health England oversee the testing of patients who were seriously ill in hospital as well as the most critical key workers. The test involves a swab from the mouth and nose as well as a sample of saliva. Although both of these are taken from the same patient, they are counted twice by the government in its daily data. It is not the first time the government has been caught massaging the testing data. It was accused last month of including thousands of home tests which have been posted but not completed in a bid to reach its target of 100,000 tests. John Ashworth, MP, Labour Shadow Health Secretary, said ministers have already received an embarrassing slap on the wrist for their dodgy spin on testing figures. It seems they have not learnt their lesson. We need absolute transparency in the presentation of these figures. The government announced at the beginning of May that it would be extending its target from 100,000 tests per day to 200,000, but so far it has only hit the 100,000 target nine times in the 20 days since its introduction. Global health experts said the government should stop fixating on its arbitrary targets and instead focus on making testing work to drive down COVID-19 infections in the UK. Nicholas Stonehouse, Professor of Molecular Virology at the University of Leeds, said, I don't think it's helpful to be simply focused on the numbers of tests. We should concentrate on using our testing intelligently and combining testing with contact tracing. PHE said that there were other reasons why one person may receive more than one test. These included repeating a test after receiving inconclusive results and double-checking a negative result. Debbie Shridhar, Professor of Global Public Health at the University of Edinburgh, said, Instead of fixating on the exact number of tests, we should be looking at the ratio of confirmed cases to total number of people tested and bringing this percentage down the speed of tests and getting results to individuals, all whilst setting up massive public health infrastructure with testing sites around the country for regular use by social care workers, health workers, and even towards teachers as capacity grows. The number of tests required is linked to how much transmission is occurring. Both Public Health England and the Department of Public Health and Social Care did not offer further comment.
In terms of the figures, I think I've mentioned this before, but it's worth mentioning again in this context because it bears repeating and I'm going to put it together with another document afterwards. This is an article on Off Guardian who've done some great work throughout this pandemic situation and it's called Why You Can't Trust the UK's Daily Death COVID-19 Updates. The daily COVID-19 death reports issued by the UK government are generally misleading and being so misrepresented by the media they amount to little more than a lie. Each day, the UK's Department of Health and Social Care releases a report titled Daily Number of COVID-19-Associated UK Deaths in Hospital. The media then report these numbers as the daily death toll, presenting the total as if all these people A. died of COVID-19 and B. died in the preceding 24 hours, neither of which is true. Point A we've already covered in great detail. The UK government, like many other national governments, make no effort whatsoever to distinguish between those who died of the coronavirus and those who died with the coronavirus. Therefore, of the daily COVID-19 deaths, an unknown number may have died of something else. This is not new information. Point B is not as widely known. The reported daily death toll is not a list of those who died that day. Essentially, the NHS's daily mortality reports, which are supposed to cover COVID-19 deaths over the previous 24 hours, will regularly and apparently randomly include data from many other days going back six weeks or more. To illustrate this, let's look at one day in detail, April 10th. The DHSC report released that day states that 980 people died of COVID-19. This was covered in the press as the UK's deadliest COVID-19 day. The Telegraph's headline announced, UK death toll jumps 980 in 24 hours and biggest rise yet. The Daily Mail reported, Britain records Europe's highest single-day death toll. Number of victims jumps by 980. Sky News went with 980 top Spain and Italy's highest daily number of deaths, which were 961 and 919 respectively. But at the time the report was released, the previous 24 hours had seen just 117 COVID-19 related deaths, according to NHS England, with a further possible 90 coming from Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales for a maximum possible total of 204. The other 776 people included in the report had died at seemingly random points between March 5th and April 8th. The reported 980 deaths in one day were in reality spread over five weeks. This is a fact openly admitted in the official numbers which this article links to. It's got lots of links to this article. It's not even an isolated incident. The same is true of all the, co- the daily COVID-19 death reports. Who were the 980 added to the COVID-19 death figures on April 10th? Why was this apparently random sample of people whose deaths were many weeks apart selected for inclusion as daily deaths on the same day? No explanation is given, no rationale supplied. What we do know is that despite what government graphs claim, they did not all die on the same day. We know that when the media reported that they did all die on the same day, they were essentially lying. And we know these lies are being repeated by police officers to scare people into staying out of their own front gardens. There's another article on Off Guardian in related linked to in that article I've just read. COVID-19 death figures is a substantial overestimate. A few weeks ago, this was published on April 5th. A few weeks ago, we reported that according to the Italian Institute of Health, only 12% of Italy's reported COVID-19 deaths actually listed COVID-19 as the cause of death. Given that 99% of them had at least one serious comorbidity, in other words, underlying cause, and that 80% of them had two such diseases, this raised serious questions as to the reliability of Italy's reported statistics. Professor Walter Ricciardi, advisor to Italy's health minister, explained this was caused by the generous way the Italian government handles death certificates. The way in which we code deaths in our country is very generous in the sense that all the people who die in hospitals with the coronavirus are deemed to be dying of the coronavirus, which, as I said earlier, is not the same thing. Essentially, Italy's death registration process does not differentiate between those who simply have the virus in their body and those who are actually killed by it. And 
how is it decided that anyone has the virus in their body? The test that doesn't test for COVID-19, but tests for genetic material. The article continues, given the amount of fear and panic Italy's comparatively alarming numbers caused around the world, you would think that other nations will be eager to avoid the same mistakes. Surely all the other countries of the world are employing rigorous standards for delineating who has and has not fallen victim of the pandemic, right? Wrong. In fact, rather than learning from Italy's example, other countries are not only repeating these mistakes, but going even further. In Germany, for example, though overall deaths and case fatality ratio are far lower than Italy's, their public health agency is still engaging in similar practice. On March 20th, the president of Germany's Robert Koch Institute confirmed that Germany counts any deceased person who was infected with coronavirus as a COVID-19 death, whether or not it actually caused death. Talked about this before, this has been going on all this time. This totally ignores what Dr. Susarik Bakhti calls the vital distinction between infection and disease, leading to stories such as this shared by Dr. Hendrik Streek. In Heinsberg, for example, a 78-year-old man with previous illness has died of heart failure, and that was without SARS-2 lung involvement, COVID-19. Since he was infected, he naturally appears in the COVID-19 statistics. Infected according to a test that does not test for COVID-19. It's worth but always bearing that in mind. How many COVID-19 deaths in Germany fall into this bracket? We don't know and we'll likely never know. But at least Germany is actually limiting itself to test positive cases. In the United States, a briefing note from the CDC's National Vital Statistics Service reads as follows. It is important to emphasize that coronavirus disease 19 or COVID-19 should be reported for all decadence where the disease caused or is presumed to have caused or contributed to death. Presumed to have caused, contributed. That's incredibly soft language which could easily lead to over-reporting. The reference detailed guidance was released April 3rd and it's no better. In cases where a definite diagnosis of COVID-19 cannot be made, but it is suspected or likely, e.g. the circumstances are compelling within a reasonable degree of certainty, it's acceptable to report COVID-19 on a death certificate as probable or presumed. In these instances, certifiers should use their best clinical judgment in determining if a COVID-19 infection was likely. So it's guesswork, basically. There's another way of saying it. And it's guesswork based on symptoms that could be symptoms from a wide variety of other causes. Are careful records being kept to separate COVID-19 from presumed COVID-19? Are the media making sure they respect the distinction in their reporting? Absolutely not, the article says. Absolutely right. Whenever the alleged casualties are referenced, we are fed one large all-inclusive number without context or explanation, which thanks to lapse reporting guidelines could be entirely false. Government agencies all across the UK are doing the same thing. They are entirely false. Northern Ireland's HSC Public Health Agency is releasing weekly surveillance bulletins on the pandemic. In those reports, they define a COVID-19 death as individuals who have died within 28 days of first positive result, whether or not COVID-19 was the cause of death. NHS England's Office of National Statistics releases weekly reports on nationwide mortality. Its latest report, week 12, March 14th to 20th, was released on March 31st and made special mention of COVID-19, explaining they were going to change the way they report their numbers in future. This is just after... Britain went into lockdown. The ONS system is predicated on the registration of deaths, meaning they count not the number of people who die every week, but the number of deaths registered per week. This naturally leads to slight delays in the recording of numbers as the registration process can take a few days. However, with coronavirus deaths, since it's a national emergency, they are now including provisional figures which will be included in the data set in subsequent weeks. This leaves them wide open to either accidentally or deliberately reporting the same deaths twice, once provisionally and then once officially a week later. That's just one peculiar policy decision. There are many others. And there's an excerpt from a document pictured in the article which says, because of the rapidly changing situation, 
with COVID-19. In this bulletin, we have also given provisional updated totals based on the latest available death registrations up to 25th of March. These deaths will be included in the data set in a subsequent week. Up until now, the article continues, the ONS reported those COVID-19 numbers collated by the Department of Health and Social Care. The DHSC records only those who died in hospital and have tested positive for the coronavirus's COVID-19 deaths. Doesn't mean they've got coronavirus, just means they've tested for it. But from now on, the ONS will also include COVID-19 deaths in the community in their statistics. That includes those not tested for COVID-19 and where suspected COVID-19 is presumed to be a contributory factor. The official NHS guidance for doctors filling out death certificates is just as vague. If before death a patient had symptoms typical of COVID-19 infection but the test result has not been received, it would be satisfactory to give COVID-19 as the cause of death and then share the test result when it becomes available. In the circumstances of there being no swab, it is satisfactory to apply clinical judgment. Government is telling doctors it is okay to list COVID-19 as a cause of death when there is literally no evidence the deceased was infected. That means there are potentially huge numbers of COVID-19 deaths that were never even tested for the disease. Further, any possible mistakes will never be noticed or rectified thanks to recent changes to the law. Usually, any death attributed to a notifiable disease had to be referred to a coroner for a jury hearing. Under UK law, COVID-19 is a notifiable disease, but the new coronavirus bill alters the Coroners and Justice Act 2009 to specifically exempt alleged COVID-19 deaths from jury inquests. Furthermore, according to the Office of the Chief Coroner, the coronavirus bill means that these deaths do not have to be referred to a coroner at all, and that the medical practitioners can sign off a cause of death for a body they have never even seen. Any registered medical practitioner can sign an MCCD medical certificate for cause of death, even if the deceased was not attended during their last illness and not seen after death, provided they are able to state the cause of death to the best of their knowledge and belief. Deaths in the community can be listed as COVID-19 deaths without being tested for the disease or even seen by a doctor at all. These deaths will not necessarily be referred to a coroner and certainly not heard by a jury. By enacting this legislation, the UK government has not only made false reporting of COVID-19 deaths more likely, they actively removed the safeguards designed to correct it. Recording accurate fatality numbers in this situation is borderline impossible. This is at best totally irresponsible and at worst incredibly sinister. Dr John Lee, a professor of pathology and retired consultant pathologist within the NHS, wrote in a column for The Spectator, Many UK health spokespersons have been careful to repeatedly say that the numbers quoted in the UK indicate death with the virus, not death due to the virus. This nuance is crucial, not just in understanding the disease, but for understanding the burden it might place on a health service in coming days. Unfortunately, nuance tends to be lost in the numbers quoted from the database being used to track COVID-19. This data is not yet standard. This data is not standard. This data is not standardised and so probably not comparable, yet this important caveat is seldom expressed by the many graphs we see, in risk exaggerating the quality of data that we have. In fact, Dr Lee goes out of his way to emphasise, the distinction between dying with COVID-19 and dying due to COVID-19 is not just splitting hairs. And of course it's not. The BBC dealt with the same issue in an article on April 1st. The death figures being reported daily are hospital cases where a person dies with the coronavirus infection in their body because it is a notifiable disease. Cases have to be reported, but what the figures do not tell us is to what extent the virus is causing the death. It could be the major cause, a contributory factor, or simply present when they are dying of something else. And as much of a joke as that is, the fact that it was published on April 1st does not make it an April 4th because unfortunately it's true. 
These absurd rules contributed to this recent example referenced in the BBC article but not widely reported at the time. An 18-year-old in Coventry tested positive for coronavirus the day before he died and was reported as his youngest victim at the time, but the hospital subsequently released a statement saying his death had been due to a separate significant health condition and not connected to the virus. This story is completely true. The boy was widely reported as the UK's youngest coronavirus victim on March 24th, the day after Britain went into lockdown. Before the hospital issued a statement saying the hospital tested for COVID-19 on the day before he died, but this was not linked to his reason for dying. Despite the hospital correcting the press, the case was still being reported in the tabloids a week later on March 31st. And what they were saying was, look, anybody can get the virus. Young people are not immune. Anybody can get it. However, the important detail here is being lost. Going by the current NHS rules, despite the hospital officially saying it was not its cause of death, this boy is still part of the official coronavirus fatality statistics. How many more people fit that profile? As Dr. Lee points out, COVID-19 is not a disease that presents with a unique or even rare collection of symptoms. I said that just now. The range of severity and type of presentation is in line with literally dozens of extremely common respiratory infections and other infections as well, or even respiratory. You cannot see fever and cough and then diagnose probable COVID-19 with even the slightest chance of accuracy. This has become one of those nuggets of information we all know by heart, but between 290,000 and 650,000 people die flu or flu-like illness every year. If just 10% of those cases are incorrectly assumed to be probable coronavirus infections, then the fatality numbers are totally useless. At a time when good reliable information is key to saving lives and preventing mass panic, Global governments are pursuing policies which make it near impossible to collect the data while stoking public fear. Due to these policies, the simple fact is we have no reliable way of knowing how many people have died from this coronavirus. We have no hard data at all. And governments and international organisations are going out of their way to keep it that way. It's time we started asking why. Now, I came across this document, an NHS government document actually, called COVID-19 Hospital Discharge Service Requirements. This was published March 19th. What's significant about it is... It says, this document sets out the hospital discharge service requirements for all NHS trusts, community interest companies and private care providers of acute community beds and community health services and social care staff in England who must adhere to this from Thursday 19th of March 2020. This is before the lockdown. Based on these criteria, acute and community hospitals must discharge all patients as soon as they are clinically safe to do so. Transfer from the ward should happen within one hour of that decision being made to a designated discharge area. Discharge from hospital should happen as soon after that as possible, normally within two hours. Implementing these service requirements is expected to free up to at least 15,000 beds by Friday 27th of March 2020, four days after lockdown, with discharge flows maintained after that. And it says most people will be discharged to their homes. For patients whose needs are too great to return to their own home, about 5% of patients admitted to hospital, it says, a suitable rehabilitation bed or care home will be arranged. Well, I've talked about what's happening in care homes in episode 72. During the COVID-19 pandemic, it says, patients will not be able to wait in hospital until their first choice of care home has vacancy. This will mean a short spell in an alternative care home and the care coordinators will follow up to ensure patients are able to move as soon as possible to their long-term care home. It's well worth checking out this article hospital discharge service requirements it's called and to add to all that i came across a passage in a document or an article from the cdc in america 
which is kind of like a basically a branch of the World Health Organization, even if it's not officially that. And it's about, actually it was the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration in America, but I found it while I was on the CDC website. It's called Molecular Diagnostic Template for Manufacturers. And it's to do with what data and information should be submitted to the FDA in relation to SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19. And particularly one passage caught my eye while I was looking at it in a section of this document called performance evaluation it says this in terms of testing for COVID-19 and isolating a virus and all of that which I talked about in episode 70 it says this if you are unable to acquire inactivated virus FDA believes that viral genomic RNA is the next best material to use to generate contrived samples for testing. So mimic samples, basically. Now, viral genomic RNA, what's another way of saying that? Genetic material, which, as I've said all this time, is the basis of the test. It's not testing for COVID-19. It's testing for this genetic material, which the source of which is unknown. It's just genomic RNA. So when someone tests positive for coronavirus, they're not testing positive for coronavirus. They're testing positive for this genetic material, which could be anything. And which lots of people have in their body, often without it causing a problem for them. This is why there are so many asymptomatic cases. And that may be a document in relation to America, but it's the same the world over. And the next subject this week is contact tracing. This is in the Evening Standard. Matt Hancock says healthy people without coronavirus symptoms must also isolate if tracked. People who have no symptoms of coronavirus must be prepared from June the 1st to do their bit by self-isolating 14 days if told they could be a carrier, the health secretary warned today. Writing exclusively in the Evening Standard, Matt Hancock revealed the move to test and trace when impose a new social responsibility on the public to stay at home for two weeks, even if they feel well. He announced £300 million of grants to local authorities to hire an army of officials who will help ease the country out of lockdown and back to work by investigating every new known infection and alerting those who could possibly have caught it. Everyone will have a part to play, Mr Hancock said, appealing to the country to help prevent a new peak of COVID-19 as the economy and society recovers. Not just hygiene and social distancing, but getting a test if you have symptoms and under the new system of self-isolating if you've been in close contact with someone who tests positive. That way, under test and trace, people who have been in contact with a positive case and are at higher risk can isolate and we can ease more measures on everyone else. Details of the new rules will be spelled out by the government next week ahead of the June 1st launch. Power to impose fines on people who disobey exists under emergency legislation, but it is not yet clear whether they will be needed to support the new policy. Another detail to be decided on over the coming days is whether spot checks will be carried out on people at home to make sure they are not secretly going out or working as normal. People returning from abroad will have to quarantine for a fortnight. Home Secretary Priti Patel was expected to confirm this afternoon with spot checks and fines up to £1,000 to ensure good behaviour. Mr Hancock, however, emphasised the social contract between the public and the contact tracing drive. At stake is whether the whole country has to stay in the quasi-quarantine of lockdown or just those believed to be a potential risk of spreading COVID-19. This is where our new test and trace service comes in so we can hunt down this virus and give it nowhere to hide it. Well, that'll be a first, finding a virus, because they never have yet. It will be run locally in partnership with London boroughs and other councils nationwide. 
We will work with them to reduce the spread of coronavirus in their area, harnessing their local knowledge and mobilising boots on the ground. Does that mean the army? At present, people must self-isolate if they or a family member have symptoms. Under the new system, they can get a phone call from an official ordering them to isolate. Last night, it was revealed that 17% of Londoners have antibodies, meaning they have had a coronavirus. Outside the capital, the rate is just 5%. This was published on the 22nd. The number of new cases is clearly falling and Londoners are doing their bit, Mr Hancock wrote. London will emerge stronger than ever before. And key developments is the country waiting for the next phase of Boris Johnson's exit strategy. Scientific papers from the SAGE Advisory Committee were set to support a cautious and phased return of primary schools from June the 1st, albeit with caveats about the need to monitor it, sources indicated. Cabinet Minister Brandon Lewis said, I hope that, that will give the confidence to schools, to teachers, parents and local authorities to see that it's safe with the right conditions to get those children back into school from the 1st of June onwards. Well, I like the idea of kids not being in school. They're not being programmed with the official version of everything, which is, I've talked about before, is what education is about and what we call education. But as far as I understand it, the risk of children catching and passing on the virus is basically zero. Government borrowing spiralled £62.1 billion in April, more than the whole of last year. Office for National Statistics figures revealed. National Testing Coordinator Professor John Newton confirmed that the NHSX tracing app will not be ready on June the 1st. He said there are no plans yet for weekly testing of care home residents and workers. Yet. Transport for London announced it will reintroduce bus fares tomorrow in the latest move by Mayor Sadiq Khan to tackle TfL's debts. Customers on 85 routes served by more than 1,200 buses will initially need to touch in with their contactless Oyster concessionary card when they board. Researchers began recruiting volunteers for the next two phases in clinical trials of a possible coronavirus vaccine. They asked for 10,260 people across the country to come forward. Professor Andrew Pollard, head of the Oxford Vaccine Group, said we are now initiating studies to evaluate how well the vaccine induces immune responses in older adults and to test whether it can provide protection in the wider population. A care home boss has called for regular testing of residents and staff. Sam Monahan, chief executive of MHA, told BBC Radio 4's Today programme that 3% of staff and 5% of residents did not show COVID-19 symptoms, but then tested positive. He added, if you have got people walking around the home interacting with others, then you are going to have that real risk of continuing to bring the infection in. And with the relaxation of some of the lockdown measures out in the community, then there could be the potential for some of our staff to then be more susceptible to picking up the virus and bring it into our homes. Of the 28 MHA care homes involved in the government pilot of whole home testing, 20 were found to have at least one member of staff or resident who were asymptomatic with COVID-19. People who have no symptoms of coronavirus must be prepared from June the 1st to do their bit by self-isolating for 14 days if told they could be a carrier, the health secretary warned today. Well, they're only being told they can be a carrier on the basis of a test that's not tested for COVID-19. And test and trace, contact tracing, track and trace. They're all working on the basis of the testing method, which has been used, which doesn't test for COVID-19, but for genetic material. And it's a great way to target dissidents of authority, if you want to use that term. People who challenge authority and don't want to follow the rules of lockdown and social distancing, etc. Because they can see that, as I've said for weeks now, there is no virus, as I've detailed and it becomes more clear by the day, by the week. It's a great way to isolate those people from others. Because there doesn't need to be any evidence provided. Someone gets a message on their phone or whatever. You've come into contact with this person who has COVID-19. That's all you need, just the message. Matt Hancock revealed the move to test and trace will impose a new social responsibility on the public to stay at home for two weeks, even if they feel well. So they show no symptoms. They feel fine. They are fine physically. But because of some message on phone telling them they are infected, then they've got to stay at home. 
And when you consider the fact that the test is testing for a genetic material, which can be in the body from various different causes and people have in their body all the time, or a lot of the time anyway, how long will this go on for? Because if it was on the basis of an isolated virus that was being tested for, then there would be a finite time because eventually the virus would stop circulating in the way that it apparently, not actually, has been. And that would be the end of it. But because it's testing for genetic material, the source of which we don't know has never been identified, which lots of people have, then you have to wonder how long people will be told to stay at home because they've been told that through test and trace that they have to do that I mean theoretically it could go on indefinitely not necessarily the same people but the, the practice and talks in this article about antibodies proving someone has contracted the virus well antibodies just like the genetic material can be present for many varied causes I love this quote from Matt Hancock this is where our new test and trace service comes in, so we can hunt down this virus and give it nowhere to hide, he wrote. Well, good luck with that, because nobody's found it yet. And an antigen is defined as a toxin or other foreign substance which induces an immune response in the body, especially the production of antibodies. Well, I talk in episode 25 about all the toxins around us all the time, and you've got electromagnetic radiation, non-ionizing, you've got pollution in certain places like Wuhan for example in Lombardy and pollution is all over the place but real serious pollution like in Wuhan you've got lots of things that could cause antigens to produce antibodies how do you prove it's a virus when you've never isolated and identified the virus you can see what I mean when I say how long is this going to go on for and with spot checks and fines of up to a thousand pounds if people don't follow the rules. But the rules are based on, well, let's rephrase that, they're not based on science. None of it's based on science, it's based on perception manipulation. And manipulation of perception leads to manipulation of behaviour. And that's why information is the answer. If you believe the official line on COVID-19, then you will accept changes in society to protect from COVID-19. When you are aware of alternative information challenging the official line, then you will be a lot less likely to accept the changes and challenge them. And so information, as ever, is the answer. And the final subject this week is lockdown. This is in the Daily Mail. Lockdown was a waste of time and could kill more than it saved, claims Nobel laureate scientist at Stanford University. Coronavirus lockdown could have caused more deaths than it saved, a Nobel laureate scientist has claimed. Michael Levitt, a Stanford University professor who correctly predicted the initial scale of the pandemic, suggested the decision to keep people indoors was motivated by panic rather than the best science. Well, the best science would show that there is no virus anyway, as I explained in episode 70. Professor Levitt also said the modelling that caused the government to bring in the lockdown carried out by Professor Neil Ferguson overestimated the death toll by 10 or 12 times. His claims echo those in a J.P. Morgan report that said lockdown failed to alter the course of the pandemic, but has instead destroyed millions of livelihoods. Author Marko Klanovic, a trained physicist and strategist for J.P. Morgan, said governments had been spooked by flawed scientific papers into imposing lockdowns which were inefficient or late and had little effect. 
He said falling infection rates since lockdowns were lifted suggests that the virus likely has its own dynamics, which are unrelated to often inconsistent lockdown measures. Denmark is among the countries which has seen its R rate continue to fall after schools and shopping malls reopened while Germany's rate has mostly remained below 1 after the lockdown was eased. Professor Levitt told The Telegraph, I think lockdown saved no lives. I think it may have cost lives. It will have saved a few road accident lives, things like that, but social damage, domestic abuse, divorces, alcoholism has been extreme. And then you have those who are not treated for other conditions. Professor Levitt, who won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry in 2013 for the development of multi-scale models for complex chemical systems, has said for two months that most experts' predictions about coronavirus are wrong. Just a little bit, yeah. He also believes that the government should encourage Britons to wear masks and find other ways to continue working while socially distancing instead. Professor Ferguson's modelling, on the other hand, estimated up to half a million deaths would occur without social distancing measures. Professor Lever added, for reasons that were not clear to me, I think the leaders panicked and the people panicked. There was a huge lack of discussion. The 73-year-old Nobel Prize winner is not an epidemiologist, but he assessed the outbreak in China at the start of the crisis and made alternative predictions based on his own calculations. Although Professor Levitt does acknowledge that lockdowns can be effective, he describes them as medieval and thinks epidemiologists exaggerate their claims so that people are more likely to listen to them. This guy didn't get chosen to be the advisor, did he? It was Neil Ferguson. Even with Neil Ferguson's history of flawed computer models. Professor Levitt's comments come as other scientists working in the same field also reported that they could not verify Professor Ferguson's work. Competing scientists' research, whose models produced vastly different results, were largely ignored by government advisors. David Richards, co-founder of British data technology company WANDISCO, said Ferguson's model was a buggy mess that looks more like a bowl of angel hair pasta than a finely tuned piece of programming. Mr Richards said, in our commercial reality, we would fire anyone for developing code like this, and any business that relied on it to produce software for sale would likely go bust. University of Edinburgh researchers also reportedly found bugs when running the model, getting different results when they used different machines or even the same machines in some cases. The team reported a bug in the system which was fixed, but specialists in the field remain staggered at how inadequate it is. Four experienced modelers previously noted the code is deeply riddled with bugs, has huge blocks of code, bad practice, and is quite possibly the worst production code I've ever seen. After the model's grim prediction, the University of Edinburgh's Professor Michael Thursfield criticised Professor Ferguson's record as patchy. It was Professor Ferguson's modelling that led to lockdown. And on that subject, I came across this article. This is from the 23rd of May in the Daily Mail. Publication of Professor Neil Ferguson's latest model is delayed for weeks after his team complained their work has become politicised. A long-awaited report modelling the impact of easing lockdown is being pushed back several weeks after Imperial College London scientists behind the paper complained their work had been politicised. The team's modelling is considered the gold standard by the government and its decisions throughout the epidemic have been heavily influenced by the London epidemiologists. But the group has been embroiled in a series of public controversies in recent weeks, which has prompted prominent politicians to raise doubts about their competency. The Imperial team was thrust into the spotlight when its most prominent scientist, Professor Neil Ferguson, flouted lockdown rules, which he had a heavy hand in imposing to have secret trysts with his married mistress. Then the group of scientists were accused of using an outdated mathematical model in the March report, which was predicted half a million deaths could occur in the UK, if a nationwide quarantine was not immediately imposed. A senior member of the team said the latest report had been handed to government, but was being withheld from the public for fear of backlash. They told the Financial Times a new report would not be made public for another few weeks after it was peer-reviewed by other scientists and published in a journal.
Their report in March was released as a preprint, meaning it was made public before it had been reviewed by their experts. They said examining exit strategies from lockdown remains a top priority of the team, and we currently are supporting multiple governments in their planning for this. Given the increasingly politicised nature of debate around the science of COVID-19, we have decided to prioritise submitting this research for publication in a peer-reviewed scientific journal and will release it publicly at that time. Commenting on the news, eminent statistician Sir David Spiegelhalter said major analyses should be made public as soon as possible, but he admitted that there is a fine line between public transparency of the government's decision-making and making sure scientists were not subjected to personal attacks. It comes after scientists levelled a flurry of criticism against Professor Ferguson's modelling, which warned half a million people could die from coronavirus and prompted Britain to go into lockdown. Modelling from Imperial College London epidemiologist Professor Ferguson, who stepped down from the government's SAGE group at the start of May, was described as totally unreliable by other experts. The coding that produced the sobering death figures was impossible to read and therefore cast doubt on its strength, the Telegraph reported. It is also some 13 years old, it said. When other scientists have tried to replicate the findings using the same model, they have reportedly failed to do so, but Imperial refutes the claims and says its code is held up to scrutiny. Professor Ferguson's model is understood to have single-handedly triggered a dramatic change in the government's handling of the outbreak as they moved away from herd immunity to a lockdown. Competing scientists' research whose models produced vastly different results has been largely discarded, they claim. David Richards, co-founder for British data technology company WAN Disco, said the model was a buggy mess that looks more like a ball of angel hair pasta than a finely tuned piece of programming. He said, in our commercial reality, we would fire anyone for developing code like this and any business that relied on it to produce software for sale would likely go bust. A spokesperson for Imperial said, the Telegraph's reporting of Imperial's modelling has been inaccurate, leading to multiple corrections and clarifications after several false claims in the paper. Imperial's code is held up to scrutiny as confirmed by the very many independent experts in software engineering and public health who helped review our work. Well, that statement might have some credibility to it, were it not for the poor history of Neil Ferguson and Imperial College London in computer modelling and predictions, which I'm going to get to because it says about that in this article. Today marks a week since Boris Johnson addressed the nation and changed England's coronavirus message from stay home to stay alert. Nobody's quite sure what that means. With 34,636 deaths recorded by the government, the easing of measures comes almost two months after Britain was placed in lockdown, with government making the decision on, at least in part, more than in part, the advice of Imperial College London and Professor Ferguson's model outlining the potential harm coronavirus could do to the country. On March 17th, just days before the country was placed into lockdown, Imperial College London published research titled urging a lockdown to be put in place to stop the virus spreading. Researchers from the university warned 510,000 people could die from the virus if no action was taken. Had the government stuck with their strategy of trying to mitigate the spread, allowing it to continue but attempting to slow it down with limited measures, such as home isolation for those with symptoms, this number would be roughly half to 260,000, said the report. It showed the mitigation would not be insufficient to prevent the NHS becoming overwhelmed by looking at bed capacity. If the strictest possible measures are introduced, including school closures and mandatory home quarantine, the number of deaths over a two-year period will fall below 20,000, the scientists said. As a result, the government announced people should stop travelling, stop socialising and work from home. But critics have today described the coding used by Imperial as totally unreliable. 
John Carmack, an American developer who helped refine the code before the paper was published online, said some parts of the code looked like they were machine translated from Fortran, an old coding language. After growing pressure, the Imperial team released their code, which simulates homes, offices, schools and people movement, and skeptics were quick to point out it was 13 years old. Furthermore, when analysing the validity of the staggering death estimates, scientists have claimed that it is almost impossible to reproduce the same results from the same data using the same code as Imperial, the Telegraph reported. University of Edinburgh researchers reportedly found bugs when running the model, getting different results when they used different machines or even the same machines in some cases. The team reported a bug in the system which was fixed, but specialists in the field remain staggered at how inadequate it is. Four experienced modelers previously noted the code is deeply riddled with bugs, has huge blocks of code, bad practice, and is quite possibly the worst production code I have ever seen. Weeks after the model's grim prediction, the University of Edinburgh's Professor Michael Thursfield criticised Professor Ferguson's record as patchy. So this is the track record I mentioned just now. You see, people can say about people like Ferguson and the team at Imperial College London, well, they're experts, they're giving it their best guess, an informed guess. If they made this kind of mistake once, that might be a valid argument. Let's look at this. Thursfield was referring to Professor Ferguson's predictions in the early 2000s that up to 136,000 people could die from mad cow disease. The Imperial College team's modelling led to the culling of 6 million livestock and was later criticised by epidemiological experts as severely flawed and a tragedy for rural Britain's economy. The team also predicted 200 million could die from burn flu and a further 65,000 from swine flu. The final death toll in each case was in the hundreds. They don't mention, also that Ferguson and his team at Imperial College London also have a poor track record predicting climate change impact. So this is just the guy in the team you want to advise you on this pandemic, isn't it? They could have called anyone, they call him. And when you look at the background to Professor Ferguson in relation to Bill Gates, in relation to the World Health Organization, which is owned by Bill Gates, and the fact that his and his team's predictions about mad cow disease that was a tragedy for rural Britain, farmers, and the fact that that's part of the agenda, as I've said before, to move people off the land and into the cities and to take control of food. And you look at the way that swine flu was manipulated and Neil Ferguson's role in the swine flu pandemic, so-called pandemic, which I talk about in episode 72, is it really incompetence? Dr. Konstantin Budnik, the VP of Architecture at WAN Disco, told The Telegraph, the facts from the early 2000s are just yet another confirmation of their modelling approach was flawed to the core. Professor Ferguson defended Imperial's foot and mouth work, saying they were doing modelling in real time with limited data. He added, I think the broad conclusions reached were still valid. How? The true death toll of COVID-19 has far exceeded what was predicted by Imperial College under the total lockdown scenario, 20,000 over two years. The government's total death toll currently stands at 34,466. Using data that collects death certificates, it is more in the region of 39,000. The Imperial College COVID-19 response team came to their predictions with a number of mathematical calculations. England's top statisticians estimate that 0.27% of the population has been infected with COVID-19 on any, on any given day over the past fortnight, equal to around 148,000 people and certainly between 94,000 and 222,000. 
But bear in mind that these figures are massively questionable, even if you accept the virus exists. As I've explained over a whole episode in episode 69 and in this episode already. So take that into account. The model simulated transport links, population size, healthcare provisions and social networks to predict how the pandemic would spread. Professor Ferguson and other Imperial College researchers predicted these measures would reduce demand on the healthcare system while protecting those who are most at risk. Speaking at the time of the paper publication, Professor Ferguson said, No country in this world this far has seen an epidemic that large, a quarter of a million deaths. This is an early extrapolation of an early epidemic that was suppressed in China, but we have no reason to believe that's not what would happen if we frankly did nothing. And even if we did all we could to slow not reverse the spread, we'd still be looking at a very large number of deaths and the health system being overwhelmed. But it's not overwhelmed because hospitals are largely empty, or have been, over the past few months. Initially, when we came up with these kind of estimates, they were viewed as what's called the reasonable worst case. But as information has been gathered in recent weeks from particularly Italy, but other countries, it has become increasingly clear that actually this is not the reasonable worst case, it is the most likely scenario. He added that it is much likely such measures, most notably large-scale social distancing, will need to be in place for many months, perhaps until a vaccine becomes available. This is the common theme. We can't be clear of this. We can't go back to normal until there's a vaccine, which Bill Gates is fundamentally involved in. And so it's no wonder that the people connected to Gates say what he says, which is that we can't go back to normal until there's a vaccine. While there was overwhelming praise for the research for triggering a much-needed lockdown, criticism of Professor Ferguson's research was voiced at the time. Professor John Ashton, a former regional director of public health for Northwest England, accused number 10 of relying on a little clique of researchers and failing to consult a wider pool of academics. Very good point. Why didn't they do that? Especially given Ferguson and his team's record. These guys are being regarded as demigods, he said in April. Here we are talking about science, but this research is being given a kind of religious status, like tablets of stone from the mountain brilliant point. A wider pool of academics would have pointed out the fundamental flaws in the coding and predictions of Ferguson and his team's computer models and would have avoided an unnecessary lockdown, which was not called because of the threat to health or the case or death numbers. It was called because of the computer models. When you look at Ferguson's record and the consequences of this lockdown, Ferguson should never, ever be allowed to advise any government ever again. That should already have happened with his record. But it just so happens that his predictions each time he's farcically asked to make predictions suit the cult's agenda each time. The idea that that could not possibly be not a coincidence is ludicrous. And it's yet more confirmation, as I've said many times, that society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. So that's it for this week. That's the news, that's the context and connections, that's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.